Luke chapter 15 and beginning at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Good morning, everybody. Uh, great to be here. And I want to start with a, a question, as is my want to an extent. Um, have you ever uh, been lost but not realized it? So have you, have you ever been lost uh, but not realized or recognized that you were? Uh, if you try and cast your mind back to when I was uh, 12 and a, a member of the Scouts, 4th Newcastle Scouts Troop over at Jesuit Parish Church, uh, we were on the summer camp every year at the time we went away for the first week of the summer holidays. Uh, and I was a first year scout. And so you can imagine at, at the age of 12, the guys who were our patrol leaders who were either 15 or 16 were, were like kind of gods walking among men. They were incredible people. And we went for our overnight expedition as part of the week. And we set out and these guys had planned the route knew where we were camping, we were carrying all our equipment on our back, and we walked for what seemed like an unbelievable length of time until we finally got to the spot where these fellas confidently declared, we're here, it's time to put our tents up, we're camping here, guys, it's time for dinner, let's, let's get cracking. So you can imagine, a sigh of relief, uh, we put the tent up, great night's sleep, until early in the morning we were woken by uh, the shouts of our leaders uh, and the sounds of the engines of quad bikes, uh, and all sorts, and, and you can imagine I'm only a, a little chap at this point, so I'm a bit confused and, and flustered. Um, but what it became apparent was that we weren't where we were meant to be. In fact, we were camping about half a mile away from where we should have been. And so the leaders who'd been waiting for us to arrive half a mile away had spent the night growing increasingly panicked about the location of these 20 boys who were charged in their care for a week. We were in completely the wrong place, and we had no idea about it until they appeared. And I'm sure there was some kind of inquisition as to how those, things event, those events took place. I wasn't party to that. And in our passage this morning, one of the key groups of people is in a very similar place. They are miles away from where they should have been or could have been in regards to their relationship with God. They are lost, but they have no idea about it. They are lost, but they don't have a clue that that's the case. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law had spent the time leading up to this passage in Luke 14 in table fellowship with Jesus. And Jesus has unpacked for them again and again the nature of this kingdom that God had sent him to establish. And these guys, unfortunately, are not ready or willing to listen. Jesus outlined this vision of a kingdom where the proud are made humble and the humble are raised up. 
where the first are last and the last are first. And the Pharisees don't want to hear it. They are lost and they don't realize it. And that final sentence of chapter 14 is really important as we step into chapter 15. It reads, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Luke's first audience, the contemporaries of Jesus and more, would have had an expectation. Who's ready to hear? Well, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the guys who are hungering to to know what it is to follow God's law in full. But it's not them who are ready to listen. Look at the first words of Luke chapter 15. Who draws near to hear? Whose ears are ready? The tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners. It's easy for us, I know personally at least, it's easy to let familiarity diminish the the resonance of these words. It isn't the supposedly righteous who draw close to Jesus, desperate to know what it is to be a citizen in his kingdom. It's the people who the culture thought were morally bankrupt, those tax collectors, those people who, who robbed their own people who were betrayers of their national identity, who served the hated Roman Empire, and the sinners, those people who lived a life in open opposition to the law of God, they're the ones who are drawn closer and closer in to hear from Jesus. And it's the righteous who choose to, or supposedly righteous at least, who choose to reject him. And as I've been thinking about this this week, I felt a degree of conviction here because I know how I fail to to draw near to Jesus, how I fail to draw near to him for his wisdom, how I fail to draw near to him to see his example in how I'm to live, and how quick I am actually to look to external sources of supposed wisdom, whether that's social media, the news, other people. And this morning we're invited to come back uh, to the fount of all wisdom, to come and encounter Jesus, and to, to repent and to hear what he has to teach us. Instead of coming to Jesus, the people at the time had a choice. The Pharisees had a choice. They could have come to him or they could have rejected him. And they choose to reject, don't they? They they grumble. Look again at verse 2. This man receives sinners and eats with him. They reject his authority. They reject his right to teach. They reject the way he chose to live. And in doing so, it reflects the fact they'd lost sight of God's own heart for the lost. A contemporary rabbinic saying to this event describes how devout Jews should not associate with the wicked. Devout Jews should not associate with the wicked, even if it was to bring them to the law. What an astonishing contradiction with the heart of God who loves and seeks sinners. Do not associate with the wicked. And so here Jesus holds up to them a mirror and reflects back to them God's heart. God's heart and his desire to reach the lost. The Pharisees had lost sight of that. And I know that we can too quickly jump to treat them, the Pharisees, pharisaically, if that makes sense. We can look and stand in judgment over them and think, well, we're not like them, so it's okay. Like the Pharisee and the tax collector, thank God that I'm not like those Pharisees who are so foolish as to be self-righteous and to reject the teaching of Jesus. And yet, we're challenged here, I think, to look at our culture and the people around us. And instead of looking and standing in self-righteous judgment over it, 
to stand and to be filled with the compassion that God has filled for it, to be refreshed by the power of the gospel, to avoid the condemning of lostness, but instead to pray for God's remarkable power to be at work in the world. And we are called to be the, the hands and the feet and the mouths and the minds that go out and do that work. We're called to share in God and in Jesus' passion for the lost and to think radically about how we can work in our culture to change it, to be salt and light amongst it. And so before we look at the powers of Jesus, I'd like us to resolve together to renew our prayer, renew our prayers for the culture around us, for the people we encounter and meet, for the society we live in, and to renew our resolve to get out and to seek its renewal on behalf of God. And to help us appreciate God's heart for the lost, Jesus gives us these two parables, or at least the two parables we're going to look at this morning. And the parable we, he first presents is the parable of the lost sheep. Let me uh, read it again for us to refresh our memories. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons with no need of repentance. Did you spot the opening phrase of the parable? What man of you? Which of you people listening to this parable would not do the same as the shepherd within it? Which one of you who has lost something precious would not devote yourselves to the search, to the seeking of what was lost? It's a clever rhetorical nuance. It draws in Jesus' audience. No longer can the Pharisees and, and, the, and the scribes and the teachers of the law stand in self-righteous judgment over Jesus' actions. Instead, they stand thinking, well, yeah, what man of us would not? What man of us would not seek the lost? And Jesus uses a motif that would have been familiar to his audience, that picture of the shepherd used frequently throughout the Old Testament to give us a sense of, of God's action on behalf of his people. For example, in uh, the prophetic book of Ezekiel, in chapter 34, God condemns the failure of the shepherds over his people to do so with justice and fairness and presents a vision of a shepherd he would send who would lead his people faithfully in contrast to the leaders they had over them. And so here Jesus, the good shepherd, the promised shepherd, stands and gives the audience a picture of devoted searching. And such is the shepherd's love that he, he leaves the 99 sheep behind. Now, we're not going to go too far into the relative merits and the safety, potentially, of those 99 sheep in the absence of the shepherd as he seeks out the one. Let's instead focus on the, the radical risk-taking love that the shepherd demonstrates for the sheep that is lost. His love has a singular focus, the rescue of that missing sheep, and he sets out determined to find it. And I wonder if uh, you would describe yourself as risk-averse or I'm not sure what the technical term is for the opposite of risk-averse, desiring risk, risk-taking. Um, I feel like uh, part of my professional role uh, at school is to 
quality assure risk assessments for educational visits, which I can guarantee is as exciting as it sounds. So if anyone wants to you know, have a taste of that for half an hour, they're more than welcome to it. Um, but we have a culture that's really risk averse, don't we? Almost risk afraid. We risk assess everything for fear of what might go wrong. And I wonder to what extent that seeps into our approach to how we share the gospel with those around us. Why risk telling a colleague that we love Jesus when that could put a blossoming friendship in doubt? Why risk explaining our real view about a presenting moral, ethical issue in our workplace that could jeopardize relationships with our colleagues or our career? Why take the risk? And in in a sense, we step back from that risk sometimes. I know I have done historically. We step back from the risk rather than take it. But what could the alternative outcomes of those conversations be? Perhaps the friend that you're talking to is thinking, I'm sure this person called himself a Christian, and they say they love Jesus, and it's the most incredible news they've ever heard, but they've never told me about it. Why aren't they telling me about this astonishing, life-changing encounter they've supposedly had with God? Or don't they, they think differently to this? Why aren't they bold enough to tell us what they really think? Because actually I agree with them about this issue, and I want an ally in this dialogue. We are sometimes so risk-averse we don't take the opportunities presented to us to witness faithfully and to share in the work of God, in the seeking and saving of the lost. The shepherd's example, his daring, radical, risk-taking seeking of his lost sheep serves as a challenge to us. And he sets out and he seeks and he finds and carries the sheep home on his shoulders and then there comes celebration. Celebration. Did he see that in the parable? He gathers his friends and his neighbors to him. He says, rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. And for Jesus' first century audience, this would have been a radical idea. Revolutionary almost. The notion that God, God sets out and seeks sinners. God is determined to restore his people's relationship with him would have been a revolutionary notion. And we can look this morning and see a God who was so determined to seek out the lost that he sent his son. And the notice is, as Rob's helpfully remind us, as November rapidly turns to December, we have the opportunity, don't we, to dwell upon and consider the, the incredible truth of the incarnation, that God was made flesh in the person of Jesus, and the opportunity to go out and to share, and to invite to wreath-making events, carol services, family carols, and more. We have an opportunity to demonstrate our commitment to the seeking of the lost in the weeks ahead. And the rejoicing is such that it's reflected in heaven. Just over, so verse 7 says, Just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. How should we, or how could we read that phrase? There is more joy over than the repentant one than the 99 who need no repentance. There are a variety of of interpretations out there. Are the 99 the self-righteous who fail to see their need for repentance, perhaps? Or, uh, and this is, uh, I'm going to say, I would say it's my preferred option, but that would be slightly grandiose. It's what John Piper says, and I read it and thought it's very profound, and I agree with it. If you're not familiar with John Piper, the American uh, pastor and writer, uh, as a recommendation as well, he's a remarkable guy. And he suggests, in fact, that the 99 are already in fellowship with God. And those 99, are, they bring God great joy, 
but it's a bit like a family event where one member of the family is running late and the party can't really start till they arrive. And everyone's waiting, knowing that the work of salvation is not quite finished. The 99 are saved and waiting, but then the one returns. The work of salvation is complete. And then there's a time of incredible, overflowing rejoicing. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it, of a God who seeks us out and desires us to be in relationship with him, just as a father takes great joy in the restoration of his family around him. I hope that is a refreshing vision of the God that we're gathered here to worship together. And to make sure that Jesus' radical message of the lost-seeking and sinner-loving, rejoicing God hits home, he then presents another parable. And this parable perhaps focuses a little bit more on the sense of where we find our rejoicing. And I know it can be all too easy for us uh, to identify fleeting sources of happiness, fleeting sources of joy, and to invest too much in them in our lives. If anyone had spoken to me in the immediate aftermath of England's Rugby World Cup semi-final victory over the All Blacks, you would have found a person investing too much in fleeting joys as the week later catastrophic defeat to South Africa um, then uh, made all too painfully clear, to me at least. And so we're presented with somebody who is finding joy not in the fleeting hopes of sporting victory or whatever it may be, but in something more permanent and, and more precious. And this time the seeker uh, is a woman, a woman who has lost a coin. The coin would have been the uh, equivalent of a, of a day's wage. And the parable says this, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So this coin, as we've said, it could well have been a, a, a wage, a salary that had been granted, a day's wage, or it could have been, some people suggest, a, a part of the woman's uh, dowry, a, a, an ornamental headdress that had fallen. And it's gone missing in her home. Uh, the little detail about the lighting of the lamp and the sweeping suggests perhaps this was the home of somebody from a, a lower income. Peasant dwellings in the first century had a, a small door and a small window, and that was it. And so to really see what was going on inside the dwelling, you needed a lamp lit, which also would have burned oil, which was valuable and precious. But she's prepared to spend that, uh, already spent money on the oil, to seek and find the coin. And she searches diligently. She sweeps her house clean until she finds it. And what does she do when she finds it? Rejoices. She rejoices. She gathers her friends together and she has an extravagant celebration over the finding of the coin. And this time, Jesus concludes, there's more rejoicing before the angels of God. Rejoicing before the angels of God. The whole community of heaven celebrates the finding of the lost. So if the first parable concludes with the celebration of those who have been saved together, at the rejoicing, at the, sorry, at the saving of a lost person. Here we see the whole community of heaven gathered to rejoice over the saving of the lost. What a picture that is, that when we come to faith in Christ, the whole community of heaven celebrates. Not because there's a group of people, but because of one person. You and I, 
one person comes to saving faith in Christ and the whole community of heaven celebrates extravagantly. What a remarkable thing. So, so how should we respond? As we've uh, already alluded to this morning, we're approaching the time when the good news of great joy for all the people was definitively declared in the sending of Jesus to earth. And so we're challenged this morning, I hope, to be devoted to declaring that good news, to seeking and to saving the lost, to speaking the wonderful truth of the gospel to friends, colleagues, and family, to say, come and encounter Jesus. Come and meet him. Come and be found by the God who loves you and desires to have you restored in relationship with him through the sending of his son. And we need to devote ourselves to that search. I know that I have friends who uh, I've known for a long, long time who aren't Christians, and I've had the conversation with them. We've been through the kind of the, well, who's Jesus chat, and we've been through the, the role of the cross, and we've, we've come to a conclusion where they say, yeah, that's interesting, thanks for that, but it's not for me. And so when I think about Christmas, and I think about whatever it may be, or I see them, catch up with them, I tend not to go there anymore. We've done that chat. They said it was all right. It's done. And I've been really like, stirred by this passage to, 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 to go again, to be devoted to the seeking of the lost in those relationships. Not to think, well, they've said no thanks. Something might have changed. Maybe it's time for me to be bold, to be persistent, to be devoted like the shepherd and like the woman. We shouldn't give in because they don't. God does not. And so neither should we. There's a challenge in these words, but there's also an incredible encouragement, isn't there? Just take a moment to consider the God who we worship together. The God who seeks us out. A God who desires relationship with us. A God who celebrates, rejoices when one single person is restored to him. We have a love to rest in and a love to rejoice in. A privilege this morning. And a privilege to be the one who God uses, or the ones who God uses, to step out into the world and to tell it of this great sinner-seeking, lost person-finding loving God. Let me pray for us before we sing. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed a a sinner-seeking and lost-saving God, uh, and that your love for us is so deep and so incredible that you would send us your Son so that we can see what it is to seek the lost, but that we can also see love inexpressible in his death on the cross and resurrection on that first Easter. We pray, Lord, for us in the weeks ahead that we will be bold, determined, and diligent in our seeking of the lost, just like the shepherd and the woman.